In the scriptures, we read of five covenants that God made with his people. The first was the covenant that he made with Noah after the flood. The second was the covenant that he made with Abraham when he promised Abraham a son. The third was the covenant he made with Israel at Mount Sinai in which he gave them the law. And the fourth was the covenant he made with David, that he would give him a son to sit on his throne forever. The fifth of all these covenants and the fulfillment of all these covenants was the covenant, the new covenant in the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, of which our Lord spoke when he instituted the Lord's Supper just before his death. It's my purpose in addressing the subject of the covenants to show the relationship between these covenants, to show how each successive covenant in part fulfilled the prior covenants God had made with his people, but also added new promises that pointed to future covenants and to ultimately to the uh, new covenant in the Lord Jesus Christ. But before we get to that um, Uh, examination of the covenants, there are a couple of other things that I want to address first. The first of these things is the idea of a covenant. What is a covenant in the scriptures? The second, then, is the three categories of covenants that we find in the scriptures. Covenants of men with men, covenants of God with men, and covenants of men with God. So we're going to begin this, uh, this afternoon with the idea of the covenant and then proceed in this one also to look at the scriptural notion of covenants between men. If you look at a dictionary, you will find in the dictionary the definition, a definition of covenant that looks something like this, that a covenant is an agreement usually formal, between two or more persons to do or not do something specified. A covenant is an agreement, usually formal, between two or more persons to do or not do something specified. And if you look up the word covenant in a thesaurus, you will find that synonyms of covenant are words like compact, agreement, bond, commitment, contract, deal, or treaty. That's the idea of covenant as we use it today. But when we begin to look at the scriptural use of the word covenant, I think that the scriptures uh, expand that idea of the covenant a little bit, and the um, definition as we gave it above is probably not quite adequate to call a covenant an agreement um, in the scriptures is probably not completely accurate. And so instead, let's define covenants as they're found in scripture as a formal disposition of affairs between parties that is sealed with an oath. A formal disposition of affairs between parties that is sealed with an oath. Now that phrase, formal disposition of affairs, may seem somewhat vague. 
But we have to have a term that's broader in scope than the term agreement. And so that's why I've chosen to use that language. In addition, we should note that usually in Scripture, if not always, covenants are sealed with oaths. We would have today, of course, assigned documents for the sealing of our covenants. But that would be a rather unusual thing in ancient times. And the, uh, instead, the oath was used. And these oaths were then, of course, taken very seriously. You would find in these covenants, as also in modern covenants, that promises are made and obligations accepted. Sometimes also penalties for violating the covenant are either expressly uh, stipulated or implied in the terms of the covenant. And you will find in Scripture, and this is a very important point that we'll come back to when we begin to look at the covenants of God with his people, that some covenants are unilateral, that is, one party makes promises to the other, but the other party makes no promises in return, though there may be certain obligations which are implied. And you will also find some covenants in the scripture that are bilateral, the kind of covenants that we would usually call contracts. So with that a background about the idea of covenant in the scriptures, let's begin now to look at the first of the three kinds of covenants that I mentioned, covenants of men with men. And what I want to do here is look at some different examples of this kind of covenant that we find in the scriptures. The first such example is in Genesis chapter 14. The context of this covenant is uh, Lot's capture by the kings uh, who attacked Sodom and took Lot and his family captive and took away all his goods as well. In verse 13 of the chapter, we read, Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, for he dwelt by the terebinth trees of Mamre the Amorite, brother of Ashkol, and brother of Aner, and they were allies with Abram. Mamre, Eshcol, and Aner were allies with Abram. Now the Hebrew behind that term allies is actually lords of a covenant of Abram. Lords of a covenant of Abram. And I don't know precisely what this term means. It's not a very common term in the scriptures, perhaps it suggests that Abraham was the principal in these, this covenant, and that these other men, Mamre, Ashkol, and uh, Aner, were uh, his uh, companions in that covenant, uh, also lords of the covenant, and that through these four men, then, those who belonged to their households or who were subject to them were also brought into this covenant. But what we find as we look at the history here is that the nature of this covenant is really an alliance. Abram, Mamre, Ashkol, and Aner are allied and they, um, as allies, go 
out against Cheddar Laomer and the kings who had seized Lot to rescue Lot from him. It appears, too, that one of the terms of this covenant was that uh, each would have a share of any spoils that uh, were taken in the uh, uh, exercise of the terms of the covenant. And so we find at the end of the chapter that when Abraham and these three men returned after rescuing Lot, that the king of Sodom offered Abram part of the spoils. Abram refused, but added to his refusal that he would take uh, what the young men had eaten, that is, he would allow the king of Sodom to uh, pay for the uh, food that his young men had eaten, and the portion of the men who went with him, and that Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre should have their portion. So you have a, an alliance here which includes a disposition of spoil after victory over certain enemies. The second example that I want to look at is found in Genesis chapter 31. The context of this particular covenant is a meeting between Laban and Jacob after Jacob had fled from Laban. He had worked for Laban for 20 years, and uh, the relationship between him and Laban had not been a very good relationship. Laban had changed his wages 10 times, as Jacob complains at one point, and Laban felt that Jacob had enriched himself at Laban's expense. And when Laban found that Jacob had uh, snuck away from him in order to return to the land of Canaan, he went hotfoot after Jacob to uh, perhaps to bring him back, perhaps to recover some of the flocks and herds that Jacob had taken. We don't really know what his intention was. But God came to Laban and told Laban he must not harm Jacob in any way. And so when Laban finally caught up with Jacob, Laban proposed a covenant with Jacob. And we read about that covenant in verses 44 and following. Let's begin with verse 43, because here we hear Laban's grievances against Jacob. Laban answered and said to Jacob, These daughters are my daughters, and these children are my children, and this flock is my flock. All that you see is mine. But what can I do this day to these my daughters, or to their children whom they have borne? Now therefore come, let us make a covenant, you and I, and let it be a witness between you and me. So Laban proposes this covenant with Jacob, and Jacob agrees to this covenant. Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar. Then Jacob said to his brethren, Gather stones. And they took stones and made a heap, and they ate there on the heap. Laban called it Jigar Sahadutha, but Jacob called it Galiad. And Laban said, This heap is a witness between you and me this day. Therefore its name was called Galiad. Also Mizpah, because he said, May the Lord watch between you and me when we are absent from one another. If you afflict my daughters, or if you take other wives besides my daughters, although no man is with us, see, God is witness between you and me. 
Then Laban said to Jacob, Here is this heap, and here is this pillar, which I have placed between you and me. This heap is a witness, and this pillar is a witness, that I will not pass beyond this heap to you, and you will not pass beyond this heap and this pillar to me for harm. The God of Abraham, the God of Nahor, and the God of their father judge between us. And Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac. Then Jacob offered a sacrifice on the mountain and called his brethren to eat bread, and they ate bread and stayed all night on the mountain. Now there are several things that we want to notice there. First of all, you have this covenant that is made between Laban and Jacob. And you have certain terms of this covenant. Jacob agrees not to afflict Laban's daughters or to take other wives besides Laban's daughters. And they both agree that they will not pass beyond that heap that they made to do harm to each other. That's the, those are kind of the terms of the covenant. In the second place, notice that uh, Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac. That is, he swore an oath by the God of his father Isaac. In the third place, notice that they ate together. That was sometimes a, a way of um, confirming their intention to keep the covenant, that they would eat together. Jacob offered a sacrifice. He's acknowledging that this covenant is made before God himself by that sacrifice and again expressing his intention to keep that covenant. But there's also this, that they call that heap not only Galiad, heap of witness, but they call it Mizpah. Because, he said, may the Lord watch between you and me when we are absent from one another. Now, you'll hear that word mizpah used between friends, for example, who are going to be separated for some time. They will use that word mizpah, may the Lord watch between you and me when we are absent one from another. But if you look at it here in this context, what you see is that really what uh, Laban was saying to uh, Jacob was, may the Lord keep an eye on you and may the Lord also keep an eye on me to make sure that neither one of us does any harm to the other. That's very clear from verse 50. If you afflict my daughters or if you take other wives besides my daughters, although no man is with us, see God is witness between you and me. So I think you might say that this covenant between Jacob and Laban uh, kind of partakes of the character of a truce. They agree to a truce. They're, they're still not really friendly. May God keep an eye on you while we are absent from one another. But they agree that they will not harm one another nevertheless. The third example I want to look at is found in Joshua chapter 9. And this one illustrates the importance of keeping a covenant. Joshua and the people of Israel have conquered Jericho and Ai, and the people of the city of Gibeon, one of the cities that Joshua and the people were supposed to conquer, became afraid, recognized that they could not stand against Joshua, and decided to try to make peace with Joshua. But in order to make this peace with Joshua, they uh, disguised themselves. 
They put on old clothing. They took molded bread. They wore uh, worn-out sandals and so on. And they came to Joshua pretending to be from a country that was very far away and proposed that Joshua and the elders of Israel make a covenant with them. And Joshua then and the elders of Israel were deceived by the Gibeonites and did make this covenant, did agree to this covenant with them, and were therefore bound by that covenant not to destroy them, and even, in fact, as we find in Joshua chapter 10, to come to their help when others attacked them. So this is a kind of political treaty. I think we might call this a political treaty. But it's a political treaty which was made while Joshua and the elders were under the impression that these Gibeonites came from a far country when they actually lived very close to where Joshua and the army of Israel were staying. The covenant was confirmed by oaths. And when Joshua and the people of Israel found out that they had been deceived, they were angry about this, but they did not break the covenant. They believed still at that time that they were bound by the terms of the covenant. And Joshua came to the rescue of the Gibeonites in chapter 10. Joshua did, however, make uh, the Gibeonites... Uh, his servants and the servants of the people of Israel. And that was in harmony with what the Gibeonites themselves had said to Joshua when they first came to him. They said to Joshua, we are your servants. And Joshua took them up on that and said, indeed, you will be our servants. So that too became part of the terms of the covenant that the Gibeonites would become the servants of the people of Israel, the water carriers and uh, the um, woodcutters for the people of Israel. The fourth example that I want to look at is uh, found in 1 Kings 5. And here in 1 Kings 5, Solomon is... Uh, preparing to build the temple as instructed by his father David, who was in turn instructed by the Holy Spirit. And Solomon needed timber from the city of Tyre in order to build the temple, and he made a covenant with Hiram in order to obtain that timber. And he, uh, Hiram agreed to supply the timber and also some men to help skilled men to help Solomon with the work on the temple. And Solomon, in turn, agreed to pay the wages of these men and to supply their food. Later on, we find that he also gave Hiram some cities, but Hiram didn't think much of those cities. Nevertheless, this was a covenant. But here we find a covenant that's really more of a contract, a business kind of contract. Solomon needs certain materials and, uh, and a measure of labor, and in return for receiving it from Hiram, he gives wages and food for the men, and later on those cities that we mentioned. However, 
If we turn to Amos chapter 1, verse 9, Amos refers to this covenant. Amos, God is here uh, condemning the nations around Israel and Israel and Judah for their sins. But in verse 9, we have the condemnation of Tyre. For three transgressions of Tyre and for four, I will not turn away its punishment because they delivered up the whole captivity to Edom and did not remember the covenant of brotherhood. Tyre attacked the people of Israel, apparently took some captives, turned those captives over to the nation of Edom, and by that, God says, failed to remember the covenant of brotherhood between Solomon and Hiram, which had been made some 300 years before this. That covenant still stood. And God condemns Tyre for breaking that covenant and says, I will send a fire upon the wall of Tyre, which shall devour its palaces. So here we see covenants that are, uh, we could call, in some respects, uh, agreements. They're of the nature of alliances, truces, business contracts, political treaties, that kind of thing. All of them in the category, really, also of agreements. But there are other covenants that we need to look at, too. Covenants of men with men. And the first of these is a covenant that's mentioned first in 1 Samuel 18, verses 1 and following. This is just after David has killed Goliath and the people of Israel have won a great victory over the Philistines. We read then in verse 1 of chapter 18, when he, that is David, had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Saul took him that day and would not let him go home to his father's house anymore. Then Jonathan and David made a covenant, because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan took off the robe that was on him and gave it to David, with his armor, even to his sword and his bow and his belt. So Jonathan and David make a covenant together. And this is a covenant which, whose purpose, whose main purpose is very clearly friendship. There are, as we're going to see as we look into some of the details of this covenant, some promises that they make to each other. But the whole idea here is that Jonathan wants to knit himself and David together as strongly as possible in a bond of friendship. This is a covenant of friendship for him. And Jonathan, as a sign of this covenant, then, takes off his robe and gives it to David with his armor, his sword, and his bow, and his belt. Now, I don't know exactly what Jonathan meant by that. Perhaps Jonathan already understood that David was going to be the next king. David had been anointed, and that anointing is recorded in 1 Samuel 16. 
Perhaps Jonathan knew of that, knew that David would be the king, and was therefore saying by this gesture, I know that you will be king. I acknowledge it. I accept that fact. I accept that I will not be king after my father Saul. Or it may be that Jonathan, as the superior person here, the one who was the prince of the land, was uh, expressing his uh, friendship with David by saying, really, we are equals. And to show that we are equals, I give you my robe and my armor. There's more about this covenant in First Samuel 20, verse 8 and following. Here, Saul has begun his persecution of David, and Jonathan, in this persecution of David, has taken David's side rather than Saul's side. He knows that his father is in the wrong. He knows that his father is sinning against David. And Jonathan takes the cause of David, the righteous cause, a very courageous uh, thing to do, but in keeping with the covenant that he and David had made together, this covenant of friendship. And Jonathan goes to David then in verse 8, and he says, Therefore you shall deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. Nevertheless, if there is iniquity in me, kill me yourself, for why should you bring me to your father? This is, I'm sorry, David talking to Jonathan. So, David says to Jonathan, you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. Deal kindly with me because of that covenant. And Jonathan uh, says in response to that, far be it from me to do any evil, for if I knew certainly that evil was determined by my father to come upon you, then would I not tell you. And in verse 16 of the same chapter, So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, Let the Lord require it at the hands of David's enemies. And Jonathan says to David in the verses immediately preceding, You shall not only show me the kindness of the Lord while I still live, that I may not die, but you shall not cut off your kindness from my house forever. No, not when the Lord has cut off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. He expects David then to continue to show friendship to his house after Jonathan himself is dead. And David also kept this promise to Jonathan. We read about it in 2 Samuel 9. Now David said, Is there still anyone who is left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? And of course, uh, there was a son of Jonathan, lame in his feet, named Mephibosheth, whom David then took into his house and took care of for the rest of his life. This covenant, then, is also characterized by oaths, but to call it an agreement is falls short of the significance of the covenant. Sure, there were some promises made and kept, but the whole point of this covenant was to bind these two together in friendship. To make between them and even their households friends forever. 
The final one passage I want to look at in this connection is found in Malachi 2, verse 14. And here, God is condemning the priests for divorcing their wives. And he says to them this, Because the Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your youth, with whom you have dealt treacherously, yet she is your companion and your wife, by covenant. The scriptures understand also that marriage is a covenant. Because in marriage, husband and wife make promises of faithfulness and love to one another, and those promises are binding promises, promises made in the presence of God himself. In fact, Jesus takes this so seriously that he says God joins husband and wife together in marriage. When husband and wife make their vows, they make them in the presence of God and God joins them together. But that marriage relationship then is a covenant. And again, it's clear that agreement is not an adequate description of it. This is uh, promises uh, voluntarily made. Promises of love and faithfulness, promises that will bind these two together in an unbreakable bond, and promises that will bind them together in mutual love, in mutual fellowship, in mutual friendship for the rest of their lives. It's not intended just to keep them physically together, but it's intended to keep them together in love. So those are some examples in the Old Testament scriptures of covenants of men with men. Now a couple more things about these covenants. Sometimes we find in these covenants that the parties were more or less equals. Thus, for example, when Isaac made a covenant with Abimelech, the king of Gerar, in Genesis chapter 26. I think we may say it's fairly clear that they were on equal footing there. And they made this covenant with each other to not to harm each other in any way. Sometimes a weaker party proposed a covenant with a stronger party to protect himself. Thus, the Gibeonites proposed a covenant with Joshua and the people of Israel to protect themselves from the armies of Israel. We find another example, I think, in Genesis 21, when we read that Abimelech and his men saw that Abraham was growing very rich and very strong and became somewhat fearful of him turning against them. And so Abimelech went to Abraham and proposed a covenant with Abraham to protect himself from Abraham. Sometimes stronger people would covenant with weaker people, or superiors would covenant with their inferiors. So we read in 1 Chronicles 11 verse 3 that David made a covenant with Israel when they made him king of the nation. Therefore, all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord. And they anointed David king over Israel according to the word of the Lord by Samuel. 
Undoubtedly, in his covenant with them, David promised to be a faithful king, to do the kinds of things that kings, uh, things that kings were supposed to do, to rule them well, to judge justly, to lead them in their battles, and so on. And sometimes we find, I think, that the stronger party in a covenant would impose a covenant on the weaker party. We have an example of this in Ezekiel chapter 17. Ezekiel chapter 17, beginning really with verse 13, verse 11, excuse me. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, and this is the Lord speaking to Ezekiel, Say now to the rebellious house, Do you not know what these things mean? Tell them, indeed, the king of Babylon went to Jerusalem and took its king and princes and led them with him to Babylon. This was the first group of captives that was taken from Judah to Babylon. And it included Jehoiachin, the king of Judah, and the princes of Judah, among them Daniel and his three friends. And he, that is the king of Babylon, took the king's offspring, Zedekiah in this case, made a covenant with him and put him under oath. So the king of Babylon made a covenant with Zedekiah, but he imposed this covenant upon Zedekiah. He put him under oath. And he also took away the mighty of the land, then verse 14, that the kingdom might be brought low and not lift itself up. So the purpose of this covenant and of the taking away of the mighty of the land was to keep the kingdom of Judah in subjection, to bring it low and prevent it from lifting itself up again. But at the same time, to preserve that kingdom of Judah, as we read in the rest of verse 14, but that by keeping his covenant, that is by Zedekiah keeping the covenant he had made with the king of Babylon, it might stand, but that by keeping his covenant, it might stand. So the king of Babylon has imposed this covenant on Zedekiah, forced him to swear an oath that he will be uh, subject to him, not rebel against him again, and uh, Zedekiah is now bound by that covenant. Then in verse 15, we read this, But he, that is Zedekiah, rebelled against him by sending his ambassadors to Egypt, that they might give him horses and many people. So Zedekiah violated the covenant, broke that covenant, broke his oath that he had sworn to the king of Babylon. And here's God's reaction. Will he prosper? Will he who does such things escape? Can he break a covenant and still be delivered? As I live, says the Lord God, surely in the place where the king dwells who made him king, that is, surely in the place where Nebuchadnezzar dwells who made Zedekiah king, whose oath he despised and whose covenant he broke, 
with him in the midst of Babylon, he shall die. So God determines to judge Zedekiah for breaking this covenant that was imposed upon him by the king of Babylon. And he says he will be taken to Babylon and he will die there. Nor will Pharaoh, with his mighty army and great company, do anything in the war when they heap up a siege mound and build a wall to cut off many persons. Since he despised the oath by breaking the covenant and in fact gave his hand and still did all these things, he shall not escape. But then notice also verse 19. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, as I live, surely my oath which he despised and my covenant which he broke I will recompense on his own head. So God says, this was my oath and my covenant that he broke. He swore in my name. He called me to be a witness to this covenant. It was therefore my oath and my covenant. And I am going to recompense on his own head that violation of my covenant. This is how seriously covenants were understood in the Old Testament scriptures. Now, a few more things before we conclude. First of all, when the Old Testament speaks of a covenant, it usually talks about, our translations talk about making a covenant, but the usual Old Testament term is to cut a covenant. And this is probably a reference to the practice which we have illustrated for us in Genesis 15, when God told Abraham to cut the animals in two and set the pieces over against one another, and then he passed through those pieces of the animal in the symbol of a smoking furnace and a burning torch. And this Uh, passing through the cut pieces of the animals seems to have been a declaration by the one who passed through that he would suffer the penalty of death if he would break the covenant he was making. He would be subject to what happened to those animals if he broke the covenant. Jeremiah 34 makes a reference to this same practice, Jeremiah 34, verse 18. And here we have another covenant by Zedekiah. But let's just look at verse 18 first. And I will give the men who have transgressed my covenant, who have not performed the words of the covenant which they made before me, when they cut the calf in two and passed between the parts of it, the princes of Judah, the princes of Jerusalem, the eunuchs, the priests, and all the people of the land who passed between the parts of the calf, I will give them into the hand of their enemies and into the hand of those who seek their life. Now the uh, setting for this particular judgment of God was that the um, nobles of Judah had um, Hebrew slaves, Jewish slaves, slaves of their brethren. And according to the law, of course, they were supposed to release these slaves in the proper year. The slavery of a fellow Israelite was not a permanent thing. They were supposed to be released. They hadn't released these slaves. But under pressure from Zedekiah, they had done so. And they had sworn an oath that they would do so. They had made a covenant. 
about the release of these slaves and then turned around and broke that covenant, took those people back into slavery again. And that's why God threatens judgment against them. You can see that in verses 8 and 10 and other verses in this chapter. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord after King Zedekiah had made a covenant with all the people who were at Jerusalem to proclaim liberty to them, that every man should set free his male and female slave, a Hebrew man or woman, that no one should keep a Jewish brother in bondage. Now when all the princes and all the people who had entered into the covenant heard that everyone should set free his male and female slaves, that no one should keep them in bondage anymore, they obeyed and let them go. But afterward they changed their minds and made the male and female slaves return, whom they had set free, and brought them into subjection as male and female slaves. So they broke their covenant, and God brings judgment on them for that. Then in verse 15, Then you recently turned and did what was right in my sight, every man proclaiming liberty to his neighbor, and you made a covenant before me in the house which is called by my name. Then you turned around and profaned my name, and every one of you brought back his male and female slaves whom you had set at liberty at their pleasure and brought them back into subjection to be your male and female slaves. God takes these covenants very seriously. These were covenants made in his name, oaths sworn in his name, and he says, if you break your oath, you're profaning my name. You must keep your covenants. Another thing that we want to notice about these covenants is that frequently memorials were a part of them. So we find the heap of witness in the covenant between Jacob and Laban. We read about a uh, memorial of the covenant that Joshua made with the people of Israel in Joshua 24. Joshua set up a stone and said, This stone is a witness of your words, of your covenant which you've made here in this place. We find another example in Genesis 21 in the covenant between Abraham and Abimelech. Abraham Uh, gives a token of the covenant that they've made to Abimelech, verses 27 and 32. And sometimes then there was an eating together as well. We see that in the uh, matter of Jacob and Laban. In conclusion then, these are covenants of men with men. And in this context of covenants of men with men, the word covenant can mean, clearly can mean, an agreement. But does not always mean agreement. It sometimes uh, is the imposition of an oath upon a weaker party by a stronger party, as we saw in the case of Nebuchadnezzar and Zedekiah. And there's a variety of meanings. This word covenant in Scripture embraces all these different terms in English that we uh, referred to in the beginning. Compact agreement, bond, commitment, contract, deal, treaty, covenants of friendship, and so on. There's a, a wider range of meaning for this term covenant then in the Old Testament Scriptures than there is in our own times. 
but it is a formal disposition of affairs between parties in which promises are made and obligations are accepted and oaths are sworn in confirmation of them and these covenants then become binding very thoroughly binding that's the whole point of the covenant it's not just an informal promise it's a very formal ceremonially confirmed promise which is intended to bind those who are participants in the covenant next time then we're going to look at the covenants of God with men and we're going to see that in these covenants God is the one who initiates the covenant who establishes the covenant and who confirms the covenant with his own oath thank you